Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine what we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex and sexual anatomy, and probably swear words. Hi, everyone. It's another orgasm episode. Last time on Do We Know Things, I looked into the stat that 25% of cisgender women have orgasms from PVI alone. For those who didn't listen to the last episode, PVI means penis-vagina intercourse. If you haven't already heard that episode, you should check it out. The conclusion I came to is that 25% is probably a reasonable number, uh, but also I really don't think the definitive study has been done yet. On this episode, I delve into why some women might have orgasms from PVI while some don't, and also why it shouldn't matter. Stay tuned for a strange story about clitoral surgeries and a researcher slash princess who, according to Wikipedia, is the great-grandniece of Napoleon Bonaparte. I will also have feedback from some of the researchers featured on the last episode, Dr. Debbie Herbenick and Dr. Elizabeth Lloyd. But first... Before we launch into the content of the episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the last episode and the feedback that I got from folks who listened to it. Thank you so much to those of you who downloaded it and who reached out to me to tell me the things you liked or maybe didn't like. I really appreciate that. So thank you so much to everyone who listened. I also wanted to let folks know, because a few people asked, that the podcast is going to have a bi-weekly release schedule. So Do We Know Things will come out every second Monday. I also wanted to thank everyone who came out to the launch party that I had at Thunder and Lightning in Sackville. I had a super fun time. It was really great to see people out. I really appreciate the support. And one of the things that we did at the launch party is I had a prize draw and people could enter the draw by writing down suggestions for future episodes or things they wanted to know things about that could be covered on this podcast. So to join me in talking about some of those suggestions, I have invited my dear friend, Dr. Shelley Collette. Say hello, Shelley. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa Dawn. This should be fun. So I've gone through and picked out some of my favorite suggestions from the launch party, and Shelly's going to go through and read some of them. Yeah, I was reading through these earlier, and they are very intriguing. So one of the, uh, one of the suggestions, well, one of the questions that, uh, that one of your, um, your fans had is about erogenous zones. And this person asked, are there just specific areas that are erogenous zones or could any part of the body be erogenous for some folks? I love this question so much because it's something I hadn't actually thought about before. And it wasn't on my list of possible topics, but now I feel like it has to be. And my brain immediately went to my neuroscience training and thinking about the ways in which different parts of our body can get crosswired with other parts of our body. But in terms of erogenous zones, I don't know. And now I keep thinking of all of the different parts of my body that could potentially be erogenous. It's so exciting. (laughs) What else do we have? Um, Well, someone asked, why, after orgasm, do I no longer have any interest in the sexual fantasy that got me there? I feel like I've heard this question a lot, often on the Savage Lovecast. Uh, This comes up, it seems, again and again. And there does seem to be the case for some people that they'll fantasize about something and then the minute they have an orgasm, they don't like that thing anymore or they're repulsed by that thing. Um, 
And there's some theories for why that might happen, but I've never looked into it myself. So that is definitely going to be a topic of a future episode. Hmm. I am looking forward to that episode. All right. Another question that was asked is, what is kink? Is everybody a little bit kinky? So my non-scientific answer to the last part is yes. I feel like everyone has like something that really like works for them. Um, but we'll definitely cover kink in an upcoming episode. Uh, another question was about perimenopausal sex. What do we need to know? So many things. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there is a lot of myths and misunderstandings about sex perimenopausally. So that means around when you're approaching menopause, which can last for up to 10 years. So long. <laughs> um, and also postmenopausally. So after you've stopped menstruating. Um, so there's hormonal things that are happening. There are life change things that are happen, happening, all sorts of things. And I'm hoping that we can get into that in a future episode. So another question that... A fan wrote is, is there a real link between SSRIs and sexual dysfunction or desire? There's definitely a lot of research on this topic, and it's definitely a topic that I've included in my list of things to cover. So we will definitely, <laughs> let's see how many times I can say definitely in a row. Uh, yes, I, we will cover that in the future. In future episodes. So, okay, here's something interesting. It's about accessing queer sexual health. Um, how to talk about non-PVI sex with your doctor. I feel like this is a question that's really important since the medical system often is not very open-minded or even aware of what's going on in queer land <laughs> unless the practitioners are queer themselves. And uh, yeah, I think it's a big problem. I often tell students who are in my human sexuality class that they know more than their doctors now, uh, the average doctor. There's definitely doctors who do look into sex stuff, um, but there's very little coverage in med school. And so, yeah, it's definitely tricky to talk to doctors about anything outside of, quote, the norm. Um, but it's sometimes even some doctors are uncomfortable talking about sex. Um, yeah. Certainly in popular culture, I think that queer sex is the butt of the joke. <laughs> in medical dramas. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I'm not as well-versed in medical dramas as you might be. I, I do love me some old ER, but I feel like there's every season there's going to be one episode about something getting stuck up someone's butt, mm -hmm. and it's always a huge joke. Right. I'm envisioning trying to talk to a doctor about like fisting and like the safety risks or hazards around that um, and how the average physician will respond. Um, but also I'm probably stereotyping people as well. Hmm. I'm imagining talking to my nurse practitioner about fisting in a small town. <laughs> Could be interesting. <laughs> uh, another question. Why am I attracted to strange people? <laughs> How does attraction work? Uh, I feel like this is something I will definitely not cover because... It, the research is so vast on this topic, not specifically about strange people, but <laughs> about what makes you attracted to people. And I just, it's too much. <laughs> I feel like it's so varied and it's so hard to pin down. Um, but if anyone out there is an expert on attraction and can sum it up in 30 minutes or less, <laughs> I would love to hear from you. You can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. 
We are pretty complex beasts. Indeed. Uh, the last question is about online sex. And your fan writes, it's fun. But what do we need to consider in terms of security and privacy issues? Ooh, that's a great topic. Um, also, I like that you call them my fans. <laughs> These are just people who casually came out to a launch party at a bar. <laughs> um, and I'm not answering that question at all. Um, yeah, online sex is tricky in terms of privacy and security. And I don't know enough to talk about it now, but I can definitely cover that in the future. Because I think it's really important. Like, it's fun to do online fun, sexy things, whether it's sexting or video chat stuff um, and figuring out the safest way to do it. I do know that Skype, they're definitely watching you. Like, Skype is not secure at all. Um, but things like WhatsApp is supposed to be secure. It used to have end-to-end -end encryption, but now that it's owned by Facebook, who knows? Yeah, my whole heart just jumped when you said that Skype was not secure. So please do that episode soon. <laughs> Will do. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shelley, for helping me with this. Um, and thanks to all the people who submitted suggestions that will definitely make their way into future shows. And now let's get on with the episode and focus on some orgasms. Today, we are continuing to talk about cisgender women's orgasms from PVI. On the last episode, I did a quick overview of the research that went into concluding that 25% of women have orgasms from PVI. The 25% stat comes from Elizabeth Lloyd's book, The Case of the Female Orgasm. When I reached out to Lloyd to get her feedback on the episode, she sent me some more recent and relevant papers that she had written with others. One of the points raised in the last episode was the varied ways that researchers ask questions about orgasms during PVI. So some researchers used questions that were really specific, and but most of the questions were vague and open to interpretation. Lloyd and her colleagues did a study specifically to look at how people answered questions about orgasm during PVI when the questions were vague versus when they were specific. They surveyed approximately 4,000 people who were recruited in a couple of major U.S. cities as well as online, so not a representative sample. The survey asked about frequency of orgasm during intercourse generally, then asked about intercourse that was assisted either by manual or vibrator stimulation, and then asked about unassisted intercourse, which they specified no additional hand or vibrator stimulation. For intercourse generally, women reported around 35% of the time PVI resulted in orgasm. For unassisted PVI, it was around 25%. And for assisted PVI, it was around 45%. And when comparing people's individual answers across all three questions, almost all women reported higher likelihood of orgasm with assisted PVI. Dr. Lloyd also sent over two studies looking at orgasms by sexual orientation. These really large studies both found that lesbian women were significantly more likely to say that they had orgasms during partnered sex compared to heterosexual and bisexual women. So it seems for people having sex with men, it's just associated with lower rates of orgasm for women. In one of these studies, they also found that orgasm was predicted by more variety in sexual activities, and they had a particular emphasis on oral sex or specifically cunnilingus. 
This orgasm discrepancy between heterosexual and queer women was partially explained in a focus group study by Goldie and her colleagues, where queer women reported that they put more importance on their own orgasms in partnered sex compared to heterosexual women. So they thought that this was a more important part of sex than heterosexual women did. Dr. Herbenick, whose research on orgasms during PVI was featured on the last episode as well, sent over some comments too. In her comments, she challenged the idea of focusing so heavily on women having orgasms in other ways than PVI. I'll ask Shelley to now read Dr. Herbenick's email comments. Clearly, the percentage is higher than 25% if we look at how many women can experience orgasm during PVI, which is how it's often phrased in the media. For example, we can look at possibility, ability, potential. I'm not personally interested in any always of sex, since not much happens always. As Metz and McCarthy allude to in their good enough sex model, even highly sexually satisfied couples sometimes have fair or so-so or even poor quality sex. It happens. What I care more about are sharing women's stories and experiences and expanding rather than limiting possibilities for them. I often feel like people diminish women's capacity for orgasm, erring on the side of saying, hey, almost no one orgasms during intercourse, so try all these other ways instead. An orgasm exploration is terrific, but I do sometimes wonder why some educators and writers and researchers too are so quick to deny that many, many cisgender women can and do experience orgasm during PVI. Thanks so much to Dr. Herbenick and Dr. Lloyd for sending feedback about the topic of orgasms from PVI. I'm always looking for feedback about episodes, so if you're a researcher or someone who just knows things, please send me your comments at doweknowthings at gmail.com. And now for the new stuff. The focus of today's episode is why do some people have orgasms from PVI and some don't? The simple answer is just that people are different. In heterosexual sex, there's such a focus on PVI as a default, and often there are assumptions that orgasms should happen that way for everyone. But as Dr. Herbenick points out, lots of people have orgasms during PVI, both with and without additional clitoral stimulation. I really want to reiterate that there is no right way to have an orgasm or to have partnered sex. Whatever works for you is what works for you. As for why some people might have orgasms from PVI and some don't, I think there are a few answers. Some answers depend on the person, and some depend on the situation. For penetration-related orgasms, there are certain positions that people can use during PVI to potentially target the anterior or front part of the vaginal wall. This is the part of the vagina that's often called the G-spot. Stimulating the anterior wall can result in orgasms through internal stimulation. But the shape of many penises is not really great at hitting the anterior wall. However, you can move bodies in different ways that make it more likely. In general, though, the anterior wall is easier to get at with hands or sex toys. Although some people do have orgasms from internal stimulation, one of the main ways for people to have orgasms is for the external part of the clitoris to be stimulated through some sort of friction. So different positions can stimulate the external part of the clitoris more than others. It's possible that more girthy penises can result in a higher likelihood of external clitoral stimulation. 
But also some people might not like the feeling of penetration while they're having orgasms. You know, it can be less distracting to just focus on your own body and your own pleasure than focusing on someone else's body thrusting into you. For example, in the height report, there were many women who said they would choose non-penetrative clitoral stimulation over penetration for sexual pleasure. Different people just have different preferences. There's also a theory that anatomical differences might contribute to whether or not a person can have an orgasm during PVI. And this is where the princess slash researcher comes in. Marie Bonaparte, also known as Princess George of Greece and Denmark, was a woman who was frustrated because she wasn't able to have orgasms during PVI. This was the way she thought she should be having orgasms. She even came up with a theory of two different kinds of frigidity. One kind of frigidity was for people who had never had an orgasm, and another kind was where the person could not have orgasms specifically through PVI. She was heavily influenced by Freud and actually ended up working with him later in life. Bonaparte's research has been documented in a few places, including her own published research papers, but I'm relying here mostly on an article written by Drs. Kim Wallen and Elizabeth Lloyd that was published in 2011. Bonaparte decided to conduct research on possible anatomical reasons why she wasn't able to have orgasms during PVI. Her first study involved measuring the distance between the head of the clitoris and the middle of the urethral opening, something that's also called the urinary meatus, to see if clitorises that were further away from the urinary meatus, and by association the vagina, were less likely to be stimulated during PVI. She called this measurement the clitoral to urinary meatus distance, or CUMD for short. Very catchy. Bonaparte measured the CUMD in 243 women and found that those who reported having orgasms during penetration had smaller distances or smaller CUMDs than women who did not. She published her findings in 1924 under the pseudonym A.E. Narjani. Believing that the best way to orgasm was through penetration, Bonaparte even developed, along with a surgeon, a surgical intervention that would move the clitoris closer to the vaginal opening. And the first patient they attempted the surgery on was Bonaparte herself. We have all sorts of vulvar and vaginal surgeries today that are supposed to improve women's totally fine and totally functional genitals, so it seems we haven't changed much in the last 100 years. Fortunately, the surgery Bonaparte helped create didn't seem to actually work, and she gave up on her theory. So although Bonaparte denounced her theory after the surgeries didn't work, and after she began working with Freud, this idea stuck. So since her original work, there have been a few other researchers that have also investigated the link between CUMD and orgasms during PVI. Both Bonaparte and subsequent researchers have stated that because some people with short CUMDs don't experience orgasm from PVI, and some with long CUMDs do experience orgasm from PVI, that the CUMD is not a useful measure. With our modern understanding of statistics, however, we now know that almost never do we see black and white results. There's almost always overlap between two groups. There are so many factors that contribute to behaviors and outcomes, and in this case, particularly to having orgasms. So if CUMD is relevant to orgasms, we wouldn't expect everyone with a long one not to have PVI orgasms and everyone with a short one to have PVI orgasms. What we do with modern statistics is look at patterns of responses, but we always know that there will be variability since one thing can only predict a portion of what contributes to having an orgasm. So in their paper, Wallen and Lloyd looked at some of Bonaparte's original data 
as well as data from another researcher named Landis. As an aside, I used their paper in one of my classes called Controversies in Sex Research, and this year my students were really critical of it and seemed horrified that these researchers were digging up old data that were not verified um, and that they didn't collect instead starting with new data. Um, I thought it was funny because I think this is a cool paper, but I was also very proud of my students that they seemed to actually be paying attention in their research methods classes. Anyway... What Wallen and Lloyd found in their analysis of the old data from Bonaparte and Landis was that on average, people with shorter CUMDs tended to be more likely to have orgasms from PVI than people with longer CUMDs. So there is this possible anatomical factor that contributes to why some people might have orgasms from penetration and some might not. If your clitoris is close to the vaginal opening, it's more likely to get stimulated during intercourse, so you're more likely to have an orgasm from that external stimulation. Of course, I want to reiterate again that there are multiple factors, relational, psychological, physiological, anatomical, that explain why and when we have orgasms. The measurement of CUMD is just one. I think it's important to draw attention to the variety of ways that people can have orgasms and also to reassure people that if you're not having orgasms a certain way that you think you're supposed to have them, that that's okay. Thanks for joining me on this orgasm journey. That's all for orgasms on this podcast for a while. Thank you all for tuning in and for sending your feedback. Next time on Do We Know Things, I will tackle the things we know about herpes. For example, does everyone have herpes? Do we just not know it? Why is there so much stigma around herpes and other sexually transmitted infections? That will happen next time on Do We Know Things. You can find a script for this episode with references on the website at doweknowthings.com. You can contact me at doweknowthings at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings. All music and sounds in this episode were by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at paleblue.ca. Thank you so much to our special guest star, Dr. Shelley Collette. And I would love if you could rate and review Do We Know Things on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time talking herpes on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.